Speaking of kids, kids, are you guys in here today? I see some of you. Yep, okay. I have a question for you. How many of you guys get an allowance? Raise your hand. All right. For those of you who didn't raise your hand, talk to your parents after church. <laughs> All right, if you, okay, let's say you get money for your birthday or you have an allowance, kids. Let's say your parents say, we're going to go to the store, we're going to go to Target, we're going to go on Amazon, whatever. You can get whichever, whatever you want with your money. And you go and you find something that you really want. And you take all of your birthday money or all of your allowance and you pay for it. So you're either at Target or you're online and you click, you know, submit, check out, whatever. And you buy it, but then instead of walking out of Target with that toy or that game in your hand, you just, you leave it there. You leave it there and you say, no, I, I don't need it. I'm just, I'm just going to pay for it and I'm going to go. Or, you know, you, you know, pay on Amazon, but then it, the order gets lost and you never really follow up and you don't really care to actually get it in the mail. Would you ever do that? No. No, right? Do you know any kid that would do that? I don't either. I don't know any adult that would do that either. I think that would be weird if you paid for something that you really wanted and then you just left it there, especially if it was very expensive, right? It was all the money that you saved. I think that would be very strange. And today... We're actually going to see that God thinks that's very strange, too. So we're not crazy. We're not just like selfish people that want our toys. It's actually quite normal that if you pay for something very expensive that you really, 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 really want, you will receive it. You will take it. You won't leave without it. Uh, it's yours. And if you paid for it, it's not a crazy thing to think that you're actually going to take it. We're going to see today that God has also made promises Specific promises that he has paid for. And we just sang about this. He has paid for you and for me to be saved. He's paid for you to your entrance fee or like a ticket, like an airplane ticket, to go not to a cool place on the planet, but a ticket to go to heaven one of these days. He's paid for that ticket. And it was very expensive. It wasn't dollars and cents, it wasn't his allowance. It wasn't birthday money that he gets on Christmas, because that is his birthday. <laughs> he actually paid with the life of his own son. His own son died and paid with his own blood, with his own life, with his own breath. He paid for your salvation. He paid for your ticket to go to heaven. He's just going to leave you here and not take you with him? You think he's not going to fulfill that promise or just say, hey, son, go and die for them, but I don't really want to take them home. They can figure it out on their own. They can get through life on their own. Hopefully they figure it out. No, if he paid for you, he's going to come back for you. He's not going to leave you here to figure this life out. He's not going to leave you stranded. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. He's made promises and he's paid dearly for those promises and we're going to see today how he is definitely, absolutely going to come back for us. But in the meantime, he leaves us with a promise. He leaves us with a guarantee. He leaves us with the proof of purchase so that we can know for sure that he is coming back for us. So let's pray and we will open up to John chapter 14, verse 15. Father in heaven, we thank you for these great promises. We thank you for just the, the simple logic of it. That if we do just uh, look in your word and see what you've promised, what you've done, it only just makes sense that you are going to keep your promise. You're not going to give up or fail or turn the other way or just leave us at the checkout stand after paying for us. That just doesn't make sense. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that as we open your word, that you would lead us into this. As we prayed earlier, that you would knit our hearts to this. That your truth would find a home in our hearts. That it would live and dwell, and it would go to work in us and change us. We thank you. 
for the great gift of your word and for the great, great gift of prayer to be able to go to you and have our will and desires aligned with yours. And we thank you for the great gift of our church family. And we thank you for all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So John chapter 14, verse 15. We're going to be going through uh, verse 24 today. So remember, this is a, a big section uh, that we're going to be in for really a couple months, but it really probably only took an hour or two probably for some of these discussions to take place. So we're going to be going very slowly through a relatively short um, time that Jesus had with his disciples. So this is in the upper room the night before he died. In verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. It's going to be a big word we're going to look at today. If you have a pen, you can circle that in your Bible, the word forever. Even the spirit of truth. So he's naming who this helper is. This is the spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. He's not just going to leave us here all alone. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. We also just sang about that in one of the songs. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. When you see these words, in, you should circle those too. In, I, in, you. He dwells with you and will be in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, Judas, he says, not Iscariot, just so you all know, Judas already left the building. We already saw that, so there's another Judas here. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Now Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. So there is a lot going on here in this text. And as I mentioned last week, I won't be able to pick apart every single little thing. I might leave you with a couple questions here and there, but over the course of the next month or two, we're going to kind of come back to some of these things, or some things are going to be more explained a little bit better later. So we're going to do our best just to kind of focus on some of the big themes that are going to be setting the table for the upcoming sections and upcoming sermons. So the first and main thing we're going to look at here in this first section, Jesus mentions another helper, capital H, helper here. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Now, last week I had mentioned that this word helper in Greek is paraclete, or parakletos, which means to come alongside. So this helper comes alongside, is an advocate. I say he's like a defense lawyer who comes to your aid and fights for you. Now, this helper is given to us to be with us, Forever. Forever. Not just temporarily, not only in this life, uh, not only when you're obedient to him, not just when you're at church, not just when you're praying, not just when you're in the word, but forever. Forever. This is very significant for us. Because even Jesus, at least physically, is not with them forever. He says, no, I'm going away. Right? And obviously he's not truly away. But the reason he's not truly away is because he's giving them his. And the Spirit is given to them forever. So if you've been given this helper, he has been given to you for all time. All time. He is a gift given to you. He's not a reward. Difference between a reward and a gift, right? A reward is something you've earned, something you've worked for. A gift is just given to you. So he's a gift given to you. You did not earn the Holy Spirit. You didn't work for him. He was given to you as a gift. Now, parents, I'll ask you guys too. 
and ask the kids similarly. Parents, let's say you save up for a down payment on a house, 10%, a lot of money, but then you never move into the house. That would seem strange. Now, there might be some people in this world that can do that, but I don't think any of us are one of those people. So if you put a down payment on the house, everything went through, you purchased the home, but then you just, you never moved in. You're like, ah, that's fine. Beautiful home. Took all my life savings to put that in there, but I'm not going to move in. Now, that's probably not going to happen. You probably are just counting down the days to where you get the keys and you get to move in. And Jesus says, I'm going away, but don't worry, you're going to see me again. In the meantime, I'm giving you another helper. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm coming back. I made the, I'm going to make the purchase. Tomorrow, I'm going to make a purchase. I'm going to go away from here because I'm going somewhere where you can't go, and that's to the cross. And I'm going to purchase you tomorrow. But I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not just going to leave you and go away. I'm not going to pay for you and then just be gone. If I go tomorrow and pay for your life and pay for your salvation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you basically like a down payment, proof, proof of purchase, a guarantee that I'm coming back. I'm going to make the home for you. And then as we see here in John, I'm going to make a home within you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. If I paid for it, I'm not going to leave you at the checkout counter. I'm not going to leave the home empty. No, I'm going to fill the home. I'm going to dwell inside of you. I want to take you to Four sections of scripture here that we'll kind of go through these quickly, kind of like a little rapid fire. I just want you to see some of these parts of scripture that talk about the Holy Spirit being our guarantee. So we see this word forever, the Spirit given to us forever. But there's other parts of scripture that give us even a a, a bigger uh, bit of clarity for this. So the first one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. Paul says this, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, okay, that's this body. This body is just a tent. It's not like this permanent mansion kind of thing. It's just, uh, just a tent. So again, we have this talk of living conditions and a place to live, a place to dwell. If this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, it's going to go to the grave. We have a building from house not made with hands that is eternal. It's forever in the heavens. For in this tent, we groan. Sickness and death and pain and sorrow. We groan in this tent, in this body, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We look forward to the day when this body will not have any sickness or death or pain or sorrow or tears. We look forward to that dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, to put on that that new body, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened Not that we would be unclothed, we don't want to put this off, but that we'd be further clothed in something greater. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. See, in this life, life is swallowed up by death. But in that life, death is swallowed up by life. It's the total opposite. And that's what we look forward to. So he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us The Spirit as a guarantee. The guarantee. I'm going to take you to your new home. I didn't just pay for you on the cross and let you just live and die in that tent. I'm making a home for you. And I've guaranteed it. And I'm giving you the Spirit as a guarantee to prove that I'm doing this. And you can take this to the bank because it's the guarantee. So he goes on in verse 6. So we're always of good courage. We have this hope. We know that while we are at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't walk by just what we see in this life. Yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. A few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Verses 20 to 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. If he's made the purchase, that's going to be a yes. Not a maybe I'll come back. No, it's a yes. 
That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal, his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So now he's saying, I've sealed you. All right, so this is like, in this culture, you would have like, you'd melt wax on a, on a document, and the king would put his ring into the seal, and so if, when that was delivered, if anyone, if that seal was broken, that guy who delivered it, he'd be put to death. This is, this is so important, so powerful, so authoritative. When the seal of the king is put on something, no one is allowed to break that seal. And this seal is not melted wax. This seal is the spirit of the guarantee. This is God's very own spirit that has sealed us. And no one can break this seal. Nothing. We see that in Romans 8. Nothing. No nakedness, no famine, principalities, powers, nothing. Anything else in all creation? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because of the seal that has been placed upon us. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul again, he says, verse 13, In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So he's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the purchase has been made, the seal is there. We've been given the, the, the down payments there. And we have the seal until we actually get to move into the house. The good news is that we're going to move into the house. We don't, he doesn't just leave it on the checkout counter or leave it empty on the block. But until that day, while we're dwelling in this tent, we've been given a seal, a guarantee, a promise of our inheritance that's been given to us until we take possession of the thing that has been purchased for us. So we have this guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. So don't grieve. Don't grieve this Holy Spirit of God. Church, if you've been given the Spirit of God as a guarantee, don't you dare grieve that Spirit. Don't grieve that Spirit by leading that Spirit who lives and dwells in you. You go into a place of sin. You're, you're, it's like bringing Jesus along while you sin. Don't you dare grieve that Holy Spirit who lives and dwells inside of you. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He came into you to seal you for that glorious day. So let all bitterness, so here's some ways that we grieve the Holy Spirit, in case you're wondering. He says, so if you have bitterness, got some wrath, a little bit of anger in you, anger towards some people that have wronged you, let all clamor, any slander, some gossip, all those things, these are all ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Let all those things be put away from you. Along with malice. Instead, here's what we ought to be doing. We should be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. Just as God in Christ forgave you. So therefore, in light of all this, in light of this great news about this seal and this guarantee... In light of all this, we should be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality on all impurity or covetousness, all these things where we grieve the Holy Spirit, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints." So Jesus gives us this spirit as a guarantee, and he gives this spirit forever, the down payment, and he will not leave us, he says, as orphans. He will return for us. Now let's think of another vow or another seal, so to speak, 
This is the seal or the covenant of marriage. Because here Jesus is speaking of a totally different type of relationship with God than what they had experienced until now. He's starting to use language like in you. Find a home with you. Up until now, it's been alongside, it's been next to you, all these things. But now he's starting to talk about this inward thing, this oneness thing. I and you, you and me, I and the Father. They're going, well, this, is, this is weird. What are you talking about? And so this isn't the first time that God has ever spoken of a type of union like this. He gave a symbol of this very thing thousands of years before as a foreshadowing of something greater that would come. So up until now, they've only known Jesus as being with them or next to them. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to send you another helper. That means that Jesus himself is a helper, but this Holy Spirit is another one. But this other helper is going to be different. This helper comes with a oneness, an inward dwelling of the Spirit of God. So looking back into John 14, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Second half of verse 19. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. That's weird. What are you talking about? Wait, wait, so you are in the Father. That's strange enough, but then now you're in me, which means the, the Father's also in me, I guess, because I'm you're in the Father, and I'm in you, and this is, this is bizarre. What are you talking about? In verse 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, me and the Father, will come to him and make our home with him. Now, at most weddings, we would say vows. Husband to the wife, wife to the husband. Something like in sickness and in health, till death to us part, richer for poor. There is a bond that goes so far beyond just Love as an emotion. When it comes to marriage, it's not just, yeah, we really like each other. We, we kind of think we could get along together. Uh, we've got some similar interests. Now, a lot of people treat relationships that way. A lot of people treat marriage that way, but that's not what it is. It's more to it than that. It's not just simple desire or attraction or, hey, let's just kind of give this a go, see how this works. Just simply uh, enjoying being in someone's presence. But the design of marriage is actually supposed to be a symbol and a model of an even greater marriage, a greater union, a greater oneness. The first marriage, Adam and Eve, was supposed to be a picture of something greater that would come. God dwelling in man. Man becoming one with God. Not becoming God. A husband doesn't become a wife. A wife doesn't become a husband. But they become one together. We don't become God when we become one with him. When he dwells inside us, doesn't mean that there were gods but we become one with him. When you think about this example, a man and woman who are separate individuals, uh, they're distinct and unique in their own way. They're separate. They come alongside each other. And as I mentioned, a wife can't become a husband. Husband doesn't become a wife, but they do become one somehow. Somehow that we can't quite see. We can't quite see how that works, but it's, it's real. It's there. And those of you who are married and have the glory of God as the center of your marriage, you know what I'm talking about. There's not always moments like that because sometimes we do grieve the Holy Spirit in our marriages. Sometimes we don't sense that oneness. But we have those moments when God is being glorified in the midst of our marriage and there is something so real and so unique and so mystical and deep about marriage that's different than anything else you've ever experienced. It's not just, I think she's really cool or... You know, he provides for me, and I, I think he's neat, and we have the same hobbies. It's more than that. But only you know that if you're a married couple who loves the Lord. And it's hard to explain, but you know that it's there and it's real. And in a marriage, a husband is to lead and love and sacrifice himself for the sake of his bride. His love isn't a, a selfish love or a self-glory or to fulfill his needs or cravings or desire for companionship. It's not about that. His love is one that desires to give generously and sacrificially, laying down his very own life to lead this woman whom he wants to be with for the rest of his life. And the woman, 
is to love and be given to and submitted to this man who leads her and loves her and sacrifices for her. She trusts him because she knows her best interest is in his heart and he won't lead her astray. But he's only gonna lead her to purity and to righteousness and she desires to be his companion, his best friend, his partner in life and partner in ministry and glorify the Lord with him for the rest of their life. And in their union, this sacrificial, humble love towards each other, they have a oneness. The two become one flesh. In Song of Solomon, chapter eight, verse six, we see some similar language that we've seen in Ephesians and 2 Corinthians here. Solomon here says about this woman he loves, set me as a seal upon your heart. Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. No, no man would give over true, actual love for a woman, even if he could get all the riches of the world. He would be despised if he did that. He'd be a fool if he did that. This is powerful imagery. Now, to an outsider of marriage, and I would say specifically to an outsider of a Christian view of marriage, someone who is just kind of going along life, and this could be a married or unmarried person, but someone who does not have a Christian view of what marriage is supposed to be, to them it just looks like two people who live together in the same home. They had a wedding. Most people just say, ah, isn't that cute? They love each other. They've got kids together. They've chosen life to be together. They live alongside each other to support one another. They have dreams together, and they raise a family together. That's kind of all it is with some feelings, some emotions. And it doesn't really go beyond that. It's kind of just like you know, boyfriend or girlfriend 2.0. And that's kind of it. And if that one doesn't work out, just like boyfriend and girlfriend, you just break up, except it's just a little bit more expensive, you know? And so that's kind of what people sort of view. It's just sort of like dating, but on the next level. But if you have a view, a biblical view of marriage, you know that it's so much more than that. It is all those things. People who love each other and have similar views and things, and they're cute together and all that kind of stuff. Those things are all well and fine. Those things are true. But for Christians who have a biblical view and understanding of marriage and a view of what marriage is ultimately a picture and example of, we know that marriage is so much more than that. And it's so much better than that. We know that by God's design and work, we've been made one with our spouse. Now, on the outside, you can't see that. It just looks like a couple people who like each other's companionship and shared interests. Which is why, of course, there's so much confusion in our day and our culture of what marriage is. On the outside, a biblical understanding of marriage just doesn't make any sense. Because that's the, the part of marriage that we see, the world can't see. And that's what Jesus even said, that the Holy Spirit, uh, the world can't receive him. They, they don't see that part that we see. But we know, and we know that it's different. We know it's more. We know there's something mystical and special, something unexplainable, something that's of faith and not by sight. It's not just a physical union or companionship. And so now, with that in mind, we now look at what Jesus is speaking of here with the Holy Spirit. To the outsider, a non-believer, it doesn't matter what faith they're from, they could be a person of faith, they could be an atheist, they could be whatever, but to an outsider, a Christian just looks like someone who just likes Jesus. Someone who just likes his teaching, someone who hangs out with other like-minded Christians and goes to church. Someone who has some kind of moral standard based on a book of ancient writing. Now, all of that's basically true, right? I, I said all true things about Christians. We like hanging out with each other. We base our morals on an old book. That's all well and fine. Those things are true. But for Christians who have a biblical view and understanding of our union with Christ, we know that our union with Christ is so much more than that. And it's so much better than that. We know that we have been made one with Christ. It's not just a moral code or a list of things or just a list of teachings. Now, on the outside, though, to an outsider, you can't see that. When you look at me, can you see a God dwelling inside me? No, you, you don't. 
You can't see that. Even a Christian can't see that, let alone a non-believer. But we know. We know it's different. We know it's more. We know there's something mystical and special, something unexplainable, something that is of faith and not by sight. I don't know if you noticed, but I basically just copied and pasted my description of marriage and my description of the Holy Spirit and our union with him. That little section I just did, just copy, paste, change a couple words. Because that's what's going on here. Now, if you think to yourself, if I just do this for God, I'll make him happy. Or if I screw up again, he's going to be mad at me. He's going to be angry. Well, then we're not obeying out of a place of love, but of fear or of earning his favor. It's a self-righteous pursuit, trying to earn God's favor. And just as man makes his vow to his wife, so God also makes his vow to his people. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he says in verse 15. And I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. This is forever. This is in sickness and in health and beyond death even because for us there will be no death. Death will be swallowed up by life. And this union, this oneness, this is forever. It's the, this is the guarantee of our inheritance. So now the question pops up for us, and Jesus actually is going to address this here. If this is promised forever, if it is all by grace, it is a gift given to us, not a reward that we have to earn or try to uh, work to keep, but it's a gift given to us, doesn't that just give us a free pass, a a motivation to just do whatever we want in our life? Like, hey, I can sin on Saturday because I'm going to church on Sunday. He made a promise to me. He can't break his promise. Woohoo! I can do whatever I want now. That's kind of what some people say. Like, doesn't that seem like the case? But Jesus addresses that. He says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Going on to verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever doesn't love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Now, don't read this as a passive-aggressive threat that he's making. If you really love me, you'd let me pick which movie to watch tonight. That's not what he's doing here. If you really love me, you'd let me have your last bite of dessert. That's not what... I heard that over there. (laughs) This isn't Jesus saying... Bro, if you really love me, you're just going to do what I say. So so don't read it with that tone. If you really love me, you'll do what I say. You'll follow my commandments. Like he's twisting your arm or doing this kind of guilt-trippy thing. No, what he's doing, he's stating a fact. He's he's actually stating a, a therefore here. It's a therefore. Because you really love me, you're going to follow me. That's just how it works. Because you really, truly love me, you're going to follow me. That's the proof that you have genuine love for me. Now, if you don't follow me, that just makes it obvious that you don't actually love me. He's just kind of stating some facts here. He's not not stating some kind of passive-aggressive thing. He's just saying this is how it is. So now let's think of this for a second. Think of the idea. If if we know we have God's forgiveness forever, why can't we just sin and know we're going to be forgiven? Let's go back to the picture of marriage. The pastor standing there, Will you be with him and be committed to him as long as you both shall live in sickness and in health till death do you part? The wife says, I do. Would the husband then sit there and think, oh, man, she just committed to me for life. Sweet, now I can go do whatever, be with whoever I want. I can have multiple girlfriends because she made a promise. Now I can do whatever I want. Is that a logical response of a husband when he hears a wife make that, that level and massive commitment and vow to this guy? Is that what a husband's gonna think? No, he's not going to think that. He's going to think, I can't believe this woman just committed her life to me. This is an unbelievable gift. I don't want to do anything else but love her and serve her for the rest of my life. I can't believe this is happening to me right now. She's made this commitment. How can I do anything else but lay my life down for her after that kind of a promise? He's not thinking... Cool, now I can go do anything. I locked this down. I'm good now. 
He's not thinking that. So if you ever think to yourself, well, if God gives us his eternal forgiveness, doesn't that mean we can just go do whatever we want? If that's your thought, you're doing it wrong. What that shows, because in the husband and wife scenario, that shows that he doesn't understand at all what he's been given. That, that shows that he doesn't actually really love this woman. He wants her for something else. He doesn't truly love her. He doesn't understand what she is promising him. And so what's happening here is if we say to ourselves, well, doesn't this mean we can go? That only proves that our love is not even real in the first place. So he's saying, if you genuinely love me, your natural response is you're, you're going to obey me. You're going to follow me. You're going to want to live your life for me. If you, if you know who I am and what I have given to you, you're going to say, what else am I going to do with my life? There's nothing greater than what was just promised to me as I saw you go to the cross for me. If you love me, it's, it's just common sense. And we also wouldn't say something like this. Well, if, if she's committed and it'd be wrong for me to go to anywhere else, now I'm stuck, Do I? now I, I have to obey her. Would, would a husband think that? Well, I guess she made the promise, I guess I have to obey her now. I guess I have to lay my lap down for her. Like it's this obligation. See, it's one thing to say, wow, now I can go do anything I want. That's terrible. But it's also really just as bad to say, yeah, I'm a Christian, so I, I'm not allowed to do that. I shouldn't do that, I can't do that. That's like a husband saying, yeah, I'm not allowed to go do this or that because, you know, she made a promise to me. That kind of just, you know, that, that very passive, apathetic approach shows just as much a misunderstanding of what has been given to you and what has been promised to you. So if our even response is, yeah, I, I have to obey the Bible, I have to go to church, I have to read the Bible, I have to do all these things, well, there's also something missing there. There's not a true love that's there. There might be little glimmers of it. We grieve the Holy Spirit, but something still is amiss. When my wife has said, yes, I do, it ought to make me so amazed that I couldn't even imagine wanting to sin against her. That the most joy I could imagine would be then to respond out of my own heart and giving back genuine love and honoring her and saying, let me set my seal upon your heart as well. Now, Paul's preaching the same thing that Jesus is telling the disciples. He tells the Romans, it's all grace that you have the Spirit forever as your guarantee. And the Spirit has said, I do. It's beyond death even. That's what Paul says to the Romans in chapter 6. Actually, up to chapter 5. And then you know what they said to Paul? He knew what they were going to say when he says, look, the Spirit has given you as a guarantee, and he's saved you, and the gift of, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You know what they said? They said, well, Paul, if that's the case, can we just continue to sin so we can just keep getting grace and forgiveness since he's already promised it to us? You know what Paul said to that? He said in Romans 6.1, so, so what are we going to say about this, this great promise? Can we continue in sin that grace can abound? He says, by no means. Are you crazy? Are you crazy people? I just told you in five chapters the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ and your response is, so can we keep sinning then? He's going, are you, are you serious right now? Are you serious right now? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Husbands, if you've been promised this vow by your wife, why would you want to go anywhere else? Are you crazy? That's what Paul is saying here. You've been set free from sin by this incredible Savior who's promised to be with you forever, and you want to keep living in sin? Are, are you crazy? What is wrong with you? Clearly, you don't understand what has been given to you. Clearly, you don't see how incredible and beautiful this Savior is. Clearly, you must be looking at your faith like an outsider would, just a person who likes Jesus, obey his teachings, live a moral life, and that's it. You clearly don't understand that you've been made one with the eternal God of the universe. That he's committed to you and guaranteed to you that you will be with him forever. That he's promised to come live with you and in you. That he's made a home with you and that home is you. You are the home of the Holy Spirit of God. 
you, this is nuts. This is crazy. Why would we even think about living in sin if this is truth? You clearly don't know what you have, Paul is saying. If you did, you wouldn't think that way. Instead, you would always be willingly be submitted to him in every way, knowing that he'll always have your best interest in his heart. You will gladly, gladly keep his commandments and keep his word. He says, because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So church, if you struggle to obey, and I, and I know you all do, I know I do, if you struggle with grieving the Holy Spirit, and we all do, the answer is not more obedience. That is not the answer. That is not the solution. Harder work, stronger self-righteousness, stricter rules in your life, a stronger resolve, stronger convictions, that's not the solution to your problem of sin. The solution is love. The solution is love. The solution is to pursue loving Jesus. Not Christianity. Not rules. The solution is to pursue loving Jesus. Isn't, isn't that exactly what he just said to us? Look at verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So let's reverse engineer this thing a little bit. If you want to keep his commands, if you want to stop grieving the Holy Spirit, you want to keep his word, right? We'll use his words here. Keep his commandments, keep his word. If you want to do that, it doesn't say, he, Jesus does not say, if you work harder and try harder, you will keep my commandments. Does it say that? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say if you say sorry enough and do things to make up for it, if you impress me with how hard you're trying, then you'll keep my word. Does it say that? It doesn't say that. No, it says if you love me, you'll keep my word. So the solution is not working harder and trying to be more obedient. The solution is loving Jesus more. Falling in love with the man, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and died for you. That's the solution to your sin. And that's the only solution to your sin. So, so think right now about what you struggle with. What is it you struggle with? I want you to think of one thing, two things, three things. Something that just drives you crazy that you keep grieving the Holy Spirit with that. And, and think of some of the things you've tried to do in order to fix that problem. Chances are it's something physical that's in your power. Well, I started doing this, I started doing that, and I stopped trying to do this, and I started hanging out with these people and those people, and, started, and, that, that, and those are all, that's, that's all good and fine. Do those things. But do you think that's the solution? Because it's not. If you think you can gain righteousness through the law and doing stuff, then Christ died for no reason. No reason whatsoever. Now, think of what you struggle with. That sort of living if you want to keep his commands and see victory in that, that sort of living, victorious living, is the result of loving Jesus. You want freedom from that sin? you got to love Jesus. Being amazed at who he is and amazed at how he acts and feels towards you. We sang that already this morning, didn't we? And if that's going on in your heart, if that love is going on in your heart, you're falling in love with who this guy is, he says, look, if you love me, guess what's going to happen? The natural result of that is that you're going to keep my word. That's what happens when you love me. You flee from sin. Sin falls off of you. That's what happens when you love me. When you know that I say I do till death and beyond then you're going to obey me. See, religion says, self-righteousness says, I obey, therefore God loves me. But relationship with Jesus says, God loves me, therefore I obey. We don't change by being told what to do, church. We change by being told what Jesus has done for us. That's how we change, because that changes our hearts, and then our actions follow the steering wheel of our hearts. 
J.D. Greer says, being saved isn't about learning to obey a bunch of rules. It's about adoring God so much that we would gladly give up anything to follow him. It doesn't matter if we have spiritual gifts or doctrinal mastery or radical obedience if we don't have actual love for Jesus. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. You can speak with the tongues of angels, have all wisdom in the whole world, give your life over to be burned at the stake, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. So how do we learn to love God even more so that we would obey him? First thing we have to do is we have to identify what it is that we are loving, what we're loving more than him. And we have a word for that in our faith, and that's the word idolatry. If we want to learn to love Jesus more, we have to first identify what we love more than Jesus. Because let's think about this for a second. Replace Jesus' statement with a mention of an idol. So one of those things you thought about in your head a moment ago, Let's go back to verse 15. Let's say the word is comfort. If you love comfort, you will keep its commandments. Right? If you love money, you'll keep money's commandments. Jesus answered him, verse 23, if anyone loves money, he will follow it. Right? This is, this is just common sense. And money will come to him and make a home with him. That works. Right? Uh, let's do it again. Verse 23, if anyone loves sexuality or lust or loves themselves, well, he will follow it. And then sexuality or lust will come to him and make a home with him. That sounds about right. Occupy our minds, occupy our hearts, become the obsession of our life. Yeah, that sounds about right. You worship and obey whatever you deem as most essential for life and happiness. Whatever you think is most important for life and happiness, that's what you worship. That is your idol. And that thing will make a home in your heart and you will obey it. Things or people that you love become an idol when you're willing to say no to God to get what you want. And when you're willing to say no to God's ways or his wisdom and follow your own wisdom and your own ways and your own desires, when someone or something else drives your behavior and your emotions and your decision-making and how you see others and treat others and speak about others, that's an idol. Idols are things that we give the most weight to, that have the most influence in our lives. What is the most important thing that you desire and the most defines you? What defines you? When people think about you, what do they say? How do they describe you? What words, hobbies, activities, adjectives? What holds influence in your life? Idols are things that command our obedience. We pursue them because we can't live without them. We love them more than God and it brings us more joy than God brings us. And we become adulterers. Right? If we're going to go back to that marriage analogy, we become adulterers when we ask God for something that we find happiness and security and when we should be finding it in him. God's authority and God's ways have to be greater and more beautiful to us than our desires. But a man cannot be free from sin until he hates his sin, until he hates his idols. And so we don't just stop there with recognizing our sin or idols. We can't stop there because if we do, it'll just produce some desire for us to perform, to operate in self-strength and do better next time and make God proud or prove myself to God and others, something like that. No, we can't just stop at recognizing our idols and our misplaced love. We also then have to look upon Jesus. Not his commands per se, though those are important, but look upon Jesus. Seek to love him more. Seek to find him, seek to know him, to sit at his feet, to let his word speak to us and we speak to him in prayer, asking the Holy Spirit inside of us, our helper, to lead us into truth and lead our prayers so that we pray in Jesus' name, that we would learn to pray his desires for our life and not our desires for our life, that we would seek to love him more by allowing people in our lives who do love him than to encourage us and correct us and challenge us, lift us up and give us wisdom. We're going to continue to see more of this next week and in the coming weeks, but I want to close with just a reminder from the very end of John. I've mentioned this a couple times in the last few months. The whole purpose, because we're seeing a lot of similar themes pop up in John all over the place, and we'll see some more, but John tells us at the very end of this book why he wrote the book. It says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these ones, what we're talking about here, this dialogue that we're looking at, these are written 
so that you can believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote this book. But as we continue to go through John and see this amazing dialogue with Jesus and his disciples, it's all for the purpose that we would believe in Jesus, not just in Christianity, not just in morality, not just in rules and a way of living and doctrine and all those things. Those things are important. But John writes this so that we would believe in Jesus, not just in those other things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I could just never tire of hearing the gospel. I could just never grow tired of being reminded of just these so many promises, promises that I forget about, promises that I don't give enough time to. Lord, I need these promises to find a home in my heart and to work in my heart so that they would warm my heart towards your son, that he would continually become the most beautiful and amazing, jaw-dropping and awe-inspiring person in my life, that he would define everything about me that my love for him would cause me to grieve the Spirit less and less and less and less. That my love for him would cause me to follow after him. And just like the husband and the wife, that I would gladly submit myself to him and serve him, love him, sacrifice for him, be generous for his sake, and love him. Thank you, Lord, for the greatness and beauty of the gospel, the gift of your word, the gift of your church, and the gift of prayer. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Help us to learn to lean into and depend upon him more and more and more in our life. We would pray that even the coming weeks as we see more about him in the next few sermons. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.